you know, there's some, there is an interesting thing of like, I think a lot of the stuff that I love in the world and even stuff other people have made, most, a lot of that stuff starts from this desire of what if I just made this thing because it would be neat and like I just put it online and see what people think. And then 10 years later, it blows up into a big company or something. But then on the other hand, there's people who are like, I'm going to start a billion dollar company. And those ideas like rarely are delightful. Like they rarely work. Like, you know, like does, does that make any sense? Like there's kind of a weird yeah. thing like that of like, Sometimes, maybe it has to do with that conversation we were having about constraints or something, but sometimes I think just by allowing yourself to think small and just say, I'm just going to make something that just delights a few people, I'm just going to put it out there and we'll see what happens. I really think a lot of times those ideas turn into these huge phenomenons and very rarely does someone go, I'm going to change the world with this huge idea and then it works exactly as intended. Thanks for pressing play. That voice you just heard is the legendary designer Max Timken, and he's most famous for the cultural phenomena, Cards Against Humanity. And this is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, where we aspire to have real dialogues that celebrate the people, companies, and ideas that stand out. We are sponsored by our good friends at Oracle NetSuite. Learn how to turbocharge the growth of your business today at netsuite.com slash different. I also want to tell you about... Uh, my good friends at One Life Fully Lived and our annual conference, October 12th and 13th, uh, 2019, in beautiful Long Beach, California. This will be an incredible weekend for those seeking mastery in their lives. And you can bring the whole family and learn from world-class speakers in the area of vision planning, finances, wellness, relationships, and more. And I'll even be speaking at the event, and I would love to see you there. For more information, go to the number one life fully live dot org slash C Lockhead L O C H H E A D for more information and to register. Now, on today's episode, you know, this conversation with Max to me is another great example of the power of a real podcast conversation. I would assert that a podcast, other than sitting down with him one on one, is the best way to get into a set of topics with a truly extraordinary, fun, and interesting guy. And we have a free-range dialogue that I think you are going to love. Max is a living legend. Um, he's one of the most fascinating people I've met. He's the co-creator of uh, a whole new category of games called Adult Party Games, Cards Against Humanity. And if you've played this game, uh, you know how extraordinary it is. And if you haven't, I would encourage you to um, pick up a copy today and at your next dinner party, uh, after you've had a couple of cocktails, uh, fire it up and see what happens. In this incredible conversation, Max shares his, uh, his ideas on design, gaming, marketing, company building, uh, podcasting. He's the host of a hugely popular podcast called Do It By Friday. The other thing you're going to experience from a life perspective and from a business category and marketing perspective is Max doesn't think about things in the way a lot of other people do. So he's got a fascinating perspective. He does completely unpredictable marketing that includes shipping people uh, boxes of bullshit. <laughs> and he's highly, highly creative. For more information on Max, uh, go to lockhead.com. And uh, you can check out the links and show notes for this episode. Now, hey-ho, let's go.
So it's just a big idea in, in philosophy of like, there's a difference between things that are necessary and, and things that are sufficient. And I think it's like completely missing from the, it's like vocabulary that most people don't have. And it's something they've never thought about, but th- like sleep is a great example or, or, or work, working hard is a great example. Like if you start a business, working hard is necessary, but it's not sufficient. Like you can't like, like no one is successful just because they kill themselves with work. There's other things, you know, you also have to uh, be a critical thinker and have good energy every day and work well with other people and be patient and all that. And th- that all gets a, is, is hugely detrimented if you're sleep deprived. Yeah. And I mean, look, you can't think properly if you're sleep deprived. And uh, if you're overworking, you can't be creative, you can't be attentive, things are going to fall between the cracks. And Look, I'm somebody who did sort of nothing but work for the better part of 20 years. So, you know, maybe I'm a little bit like a, a reformed alcoholic or a born-again Christian or something. But I think there's real pacing that's required. You know, if you look at professional athletes, you know, by way of example, we had Carrie Walsh uh, Jennings, the legendary volleyball player on. And she's getting ready for the Olympics. And there's a pacing to her training. There's a pacing to her competition. You can't always be you know, on 10. Um, and if you're always on one or two, you're not where you need to be. And so there's a throttling up and a throttling back that I think we all have to find in our lives. Totally. Well, athletes, I think um, people who are, who do training and, and athletes, you know, specifically with sleep, like there's all, there's so much, I mean, no coach tells their athletes not to sleep, right? Like sleep is, is as important as recovery is as important as, as working out. It's like part of the process of getting better. Absolutely. Your muscles can't uh, grow unless you give them a a break, (laughs) take a day off. And and I found, uh, you know, just as a side note, as I've gotten older, you know, I do yoga at least once a week and I do Pilates at least once a week. So I try to do things that are more recovery, restorative, stretchy things as opposed to just charge, charge, charge. We, you know, um, I read this thing in college or, or maybe I I heard someone say this and, um, uh, it, it, it was t- it totally worked for me, which is like I'm a, I'm a horrible procrastinator. I have no, I mean, I really have no work ethic, and I, I've developed all these, I don't know you call it, all these like coping mechanisms for not really naturally being like a very hardworking person. Um, but one of them was like in college, like man, was I a procrastinator? Like I put everything off until the last minute, and I always found I, I had heard and I found it to be true for myself that it was always better. Like if I had a big test coming up, or I had to like you know, write an essay at the last minute or something. It was always better for me to get eight hours of sleep the night before to do as much as I could with eight hours of sleep versus working through the night. Because just coming up with crazy bullshit with our eight hours of sleep would put me further ahead than working really hard all night, but being sleep deprived. Right. And look, I don't know, you must feel the same way. I mean, when I go to bed at a reasonable time, which I normally do, I'm pretty much a, an early guy to bed and early to rise. And, and I get up at typically most days around 5 a.m. And if I've had a good sleep and you wake up and you feel good and you get moving a little bit and your brain's clear and, you know, seven or eight hours of sleep and getting up early, these are powerful things. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually more of a night owl. I love, I love working late. I, I'll work until 3 a.m. or whatever. Um, and I, I like it. One reason is no one can really bother me. Like, especially once it gets like, I'm in the, you know, I'm in, I'm in Chicago, so we're central time. But like, once it gets past like 1 a.m., like even people in LA and, you know, the, the, the West Coast don't really bother you. And, you know, Twitter slows down and there's just nothing to sort of distract myself. So um, that's when I get a lot of my like deep work done, like writing and, and good stuff. And then sometimes you get that kind of, like when you're really making, 
when something really clicks and you're like really getting it and you're making good progress and you're writing something and it really starts to get come together, like at least for me, like I get this crazy high and uh, then I don't want to go to sleep. So I'll often stay up until three, but then you know, I just sleep in. I just try to make sure I sleep in the next morning. So do you find by working later and working into the night that you can get into that flow and nobody bugs you? Is that, is that why you like it? Oh yeah. Like the, like, I mean, we, you know, I'm, I am in, I have a lot of responsibility. You know, we have an off cards East community has an office. That's the game that I, that I make. And we have like our office in Chicago and I go into the office every day and I work with people and I always go in and I'm like, okay, here's the projects I need to get done today. And like, not, I, can I, do we curse on this podcast? You can curse your ass off. Oh, <laughs> I, I don't get shit. I can't get shit done in that office because like the minute I sit down to like start writing something, someone taps me on my shoulder and they're like, there's a grease fire in the kitchen. And I'm like, oh, cool. Like I have to go figure out how, what, how to deal with it. Like something's always an emergency. Yeah. And uh, well, that's, that's, you know, I'm now I'm calling you from home because, you know, and I, I built a little kind of a little basement studio for myself where I can just hide away and it's been great for it's actually been awesome for like getting stuff done it's nice to just have like a quiet place where where no one can bother me but the cat yeah that my studio is like that too it's a little sanctuary it's uh you you have to it's it's part of the uh my home but it's on top of the garage so it's not connected to the house you have to go outside and like I come in here and I just do my thing and it's nice to have that space yep so how many people at Cards Against Humanity right now? Well, that's a uh, tricky question. So the people that work on Cards Against Humanity, the game, there's probably about a dozen of us. But um, in our company, across all our projects and everything we do, there's probably almost maybe 30 people. Wow. And that's, that's we have like a shipping company that does, we ship stuff for independent artists and you know, we have a science scholarship for women in STEM fields. Like we have all these weird projects we've started and, and they all have different people working on them. So I want to circle back to something you said a couple of minutes ago. You said that you have almost no work ethic. And when I look at you and I go to your website and I read about you and I hear about all these things you're doing and these games you've created and obviously you're a designer and you look like a guy who's doing a lot of stuff and you've done a lot of things that are very, very successful um, and so what do you mean you have no work ethic? <laughs> I don't, I mean, I truly don't. I mean, I, I, <clears throat> I don't, I have no work ethic. I mean, I can never just decide I need to do something and then sit down and do it. And people who work with me know I'm an, I'm an awful, just serial procrastinator. Like I put everything off until the last minute. Like I wait until things are almost an emergency before I address them. Like I have no good habits. I've just managed to develop like coping mechanisms where, where, I don't know, where I can still get stuff done. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, there are people, you know, there's an author that I really like, John Scalzi, and I've heard him interviewed a lot about his writing process and Scalzi's like, well, I wake up every morning and I, wherever I am, even if I'm traveling in a hotel, I just sit down at the computer and I write 50,000 words. And then around 11 o'clock I'm done and I get up and I have the rest of my day. And I'm like, what the, what the fuck is that? Like, that's not advice. Like who can do that? Like, I, like, it, like I can't do anything. Like I have to go click on, you know, I'm spending all day like getting mad on Twitter and I get distracted by stuff and people bother me and I like, go out for coffee and like, I can't do any, I can't get anything done. Like it's always, it's always a last minute panic. So I, I have no, I, I don't view myself as like a very, a person with like great work habits or, or very industrious. Like it's a thing I've had to overcome that uh, I, I don't sort of naturally want to do any of that stuff. It's funny. I think you and I are similar that way. I mean, I used to be a tech executive and I used to work crazy hours and travel all the time and I had to teach myself to be effective and productive. But now that I'm out of that world, um, my true nature has shown up and 
I'm incredibly unproductive. Yeah. Yeah. It's not bad. I, 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 I don't know. I, I like that. Uh, I really value the freedom of like, sometimes I just get a weird idea and, and I like being able to drop everything and explore it and see, you know, think about it or call someone up and brainstorm or make a prototype. Like, I love that. I really value that. I hate being so like when I get really busy and I get really tightly scheduled, I really hate the, the lack of creative freedom of wanting to do something. The other thing is like, I always have a million projects in the, in the works at once. I mean, I'm working on, you know, 30 things at once and I don't know, I wake up and I don't know what I'm going to want to work on that day, but I really love the, feeling of like, sometimes I just wake up and I'm like, man, today I'm really excited about that one project. And then I get to go work on that. And that's, that's a great feeling. There's other times when that one project like really needs my attention and there's some sort of crisis or deadline approaching. And I'm like, boy, I super don't want to work on this. And I don't. And hopefully, and you know, you hope it doesn't explode. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Um, Now, of course you're a designer. And so I'm very curious, uh, particularly when I look at your work, there's, um, there appears to be, let me say it this way, a design point of view that you have. But I'm curious what, how you think about design. Yeah, so <clears throat> design is um, a, a wild um, medium in that, um, you know, what is it, right? It, there are so many skills. If you were to break down what does it mean to be a, a designer, there are so many skills that, that come into it. So I would say like the first one, the, the classic one is like design thinking and just organizing and orderly thinking and empathy for the user and all of that. But then you've also got technical skills like understanding typography. There's uh, print design, graphic design. There's all kinds of knowledge to have about digital stuff. There's color theory, composition. Um, there's this whole branch of like uh, material science, like knowing how to put what inks on what paper and things like that. Um, not to mention then you get like illustration and art direction and things like that. No, no designer is it really excellent at all of that stuff. Like everybody has some hole that they can't do because the field is too big. There are too many skills. Um, and uh, it's just impossible to, to it, it would take more than one lifetime to master all of those things. So every designer has things they're not very good at. For me, one of the, the classic ones that I just don't understand is color theory. Like I'm just not good at color. I see stuff, people, designers who are really good with color and it's like magic. It's like a magic trick. Like I'm, I'm amazed by it. I have no idea how it works. So I've developed this crutch, which is like, because I never went to art school, I don't know anything about color theory. I never learned about it. I don't have a good eye for it. I just do everything with black and white, one color. Like that's just everything I've ever made in my career. And people look at that and they go, well, that's my style as a designer. And I've definitely come to suspect that for many people, what you might call their style is like the coping mechanisms they've developed to cover those holes in their skill set. You know, some people don't really know about typography. So they use simple fonts. You know, when I was actually, when I was starting off as a designer and I was really broke and I couldn't afford good typefaces and this was before, you know, type kit and stuff like that was out. I just bought, you know, I had system fonts that were free and some stuff I was able to pirate. And then I just bought like three or four good fonts. And I spent a lot of time really considering, I was like, which fonts are going to really work for my career? And I bought, you know, three or four things and I, and I truly mastered them. I mean, I learned every glyph and every character and I learned how to manually kern them and I learned how to make them work in a variety of different moods and, you know, sort of cast them in different projects. And um, that was a great exercise for me. Having that constraint of only working with, you know, four typefaces was uh, really, really, really helpful. And now I can more quickly pick up a new typeface and figure out how to, how to make it work and how to deal with it. But um, 
constraints are not having those constraints of not knowing how to do stuff or having limited tools at your disposal. Um, that's often what we call a designer's style or, or the, like you said, the through line that runs through their work. It's interesting. You say that I once heard Jack white from the white stripes say that he thought the band um, started to get worse once he and Meg learned how to be musicians that in the beginning when they didn't know what they were doing and they only had a couple chords and, you know, she could just bang a couple things that that sort of um, the combination of not being able to do much was a constraint and not knowing what they should and shouldn't do meant that they could do whatever they wanted inside those, those constraints. Is it sort of like that? I think that's, I think that's a gr- I think that's perfect analogy. And I, I actually love those early white stripes albums. And I think what's fun is that they're so they're very limited, right? You have the two instruments and, they have kind of a cool sound and they're being very inventive with their, with their songwriting. And it's like, okay, what can we do with these, with these extreme constraints and on, on any project or any creative endeavor, like what you're doing is an express in a lot of ways is an expression of your constraints. And I, I could point to a lot of examples of creators that I think are, um, um, brilliant, but once they lose the constraints, once no one can tell them what to do, they go off and make some, you know, disaster. So, like probably the classic example is Star Wars. Like like a Star Wars: A New Hope, that film is nothing but constraints. Like everything went wrong. Like it, you know, that movie is famous for um, um, George Lucas coming up with this like, you know, sort of worn in, lived in uh, vision of science fiction, which had never been seen before by by most people. But that's a result of like all their shit broke and it got dirty on the set, and there were like sandstorms in Tunisia. Like it's all contingency. It's all like they they didn't their footage was ruined or something went wrong or the costume broke or something. And then they made it, he overcame those constraints and made it work. And then people looked at it and they're like, I've never seen anything like this. It's completely brilliant. Well, then you take George Lucas and you say, you can have infinite money and do anything you want. And he makes the, that sort of prequel trilogy. And that wasn't as good because there wasn't anyone, anything or anyone around to say no, or, you know, he never had to overcome any challenges to make that thing. It's such an interesting insight. As you're talking, Max, I'm, I'm rem- reminded of years ago, I saw a documentary on the making of Jaws. Mm-hmm. And it sounds almost identical in that um, the big fuck up in the m- making of the movie was they couldn't make the shark work and mm-hmm. they couldn't make it look good or scary. And so uh, Spielberg had to figure out, well, how do you make a movie about a shark without ever showing the shark? And so all they ever had was the spooky music and maybe the fin. And, you know, of course it comes out in the end, but but for most of the first movie, you actually don't see the shark very much. And yep. in a lot of ways, that constraint of not being able to show the shark because it looked like shit or didn't work or whatever yep. is a big part of what makes the movie. Yeah, not seeing it is better than seeing it. And uh, that they also, that's also why they came up with that iconic music cue for the shark because you had to know that something dangerous was close by. Like so many of the like the brilliant, what we would say are like the brilliant creative choices in that movie were the result of overcoming constraints. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, another, I mean, here's another one from the from the tech world that I think is really f- fun is like, you know, Twitter 
what what is good about Twitter? What's fun about Twitter is the messages are really short. And so, you know, if everyone in the world could email me, it would be a disaster because I can't possibly read all those emails. But anyone in the world can tweet me and I read all those replies because they're short and it's like low bandwidth. Like I can scan through it. Well, is that like a brilliant insight on the part of Twitter where they were like, oh, what the world needs is short messaging and short status updates? No, they picked 140 characters initially because that was how much you could fit in an SMS message before it got split into two messages with a user. <laughs> So it's like they, they had some, yeah, so they had some technical constraint of like, because remember Twitter used to be group SMS when it started. So it was like a way to like follow SMS updates from people. But anyway, so that started with this technical constraint of how SMS used to work on those old like, you know, T9 keyboard phones, the like feature phones or whatever. And they, in overcoming that constraint, they, they made this great system that now, even though we could have as many characters as we want, it's still useful for people to have short tweets. Yeah. Now, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about, speaking of sort of parsimonious design, um, and I'm a fan of a lot of your work, and obviously I want to get into the the games and stuff, but um, I I want to ask you about your website. Your personal website is fucking awesome, Max. Thanks. I'm... I'm, I'm, um... It's funny you say that. I'm I'm long. <laughs> I'm uh, about a year overdue of redesigning that site. I've been working on it forever, and now I just sort of need like a week to like kind of code up the new version. But it's done. It's designed. I worked with some amazing friends who helped me kind of re reconceptualize the whole website. So, but I'm glad you like it. I I I certainly liked it when I made it. I think it's kind of out of date now. But well, I just love the simplicity of it, and I also love the fact. You know, my friend John Bielenberg, the legendary designer, is somewhat like you in that he's also very parsimonious, uses a lot of black with white lettering, very simple, clean stuff. He wrote this awesome book called Thinking Wrong. Anyway. Oh, I um, know that. Yeah, he's a, he's a genius. Um, yeah. and, and so what I love about your, your website is the uh, amazing lack of what most people would call design. Well. That's an interesting thought. I, I would push back on that a little. Well, I, okay, I guess, yeah, if you qualify by saying what most people would call design. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's what right. I mean. It doesn't yeah. have flowers and drapes and yeah. pillows. And- well, every, I, the only thing I would say is, there, you know, here's another, this is another, here's another idea from philosophy for you. This is like, unfortunately, how I think about everything. But, um, you know, there is no such thing as design. I've had client meetings or worked with people where they're they're like, oh, well, let's just do it quickly. It doesn't need design. And I think by that, they mean something like my website where it's simple, it's black and white, whatever. But um, everything has design. I mean, and if your design, what you're saying is let's not intentionally design it to feel any certain way, in which case it's just going to be shitty. But it still has a design. Like everything has a design. You can't have, what would it mean for something to not have a design? That would be like saying like, well, let's express this without using language. Well, what does that mean? Good luck. Yeah, and, and so the the that's what I like. It's counter what most most designers when they have a website are showing off their design muscle in one way. They want to show their flashiest shit, right? Their sexiest shit, and like yours is a bunch of text presented in a very particular way. Yeah. The other thing I love, and I've been meaning to rip this off of you, if it's okay. I wanted to ask for your permission. I love your fucking FAQ. Oh, thank you so much. That, I read it I've, too, by the way. Before I emailed you, I read the fucking FAQ and I was like, I loved you before, but then I read the FAQ and I'm like, I love this guy. That, that's so, I really, that really means a lot to me. And uh, I, I put a ton of work into this. So 
I actually want to, let me, let me, I might turn this back on you and ask you a little bit about the FAQ, but the basic, just very quickly, like, so the thought process on this is like, I had this problem that developed where, you know, I'd made some stuff that got kind of popular, Cards Against Humanity, and I have this podcast that people like and whatever. And um, I certainly don't, it is not part of my like self-conception of myself that I think of myself as like a like a celeb or someone, I, I, I have no desire. Like, I don't want to have fans. I don't want to hold people at an arm's distance. So I've never like, I was just like post my email address on my website. And I'm like, Hey, if you have a, if you want to talk or whatever, just, you know, just email me. And over to, over years, the overhead of doing that got, got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then I started, and then I realized like, I, I was really kind of treating people like an asshole because I would, I would say, oh, I'll offer you advice. I'll help you with your thing. I'll design this. I'll work with you, whatever. I'll give you, I'll I'll consult. I'll give you advice, whatever they would say. And then I wouldn't do it. Or if I did it, I would phone it in and not do a good job because I get overwhelmed. And that's not good either, right? Saying yes to everything and then half-assing it for people is, that's also not a good way to treat people. So the compromise I tried to make was I basically for about a year, whenever I would get one of these emails, I started a Google sheet, a Google spreadsheet, and I just would write down, like, what are they asking me about? Like, what, what do they actually want? And then I just took the top, you know, I don't know what's on here, like 10 questions that people asked. And I was like, okay, if I were to answer this, so someone would email me and say, how do I make a successful game, right? And I would say, if I was going to pick one person and write them the best answer that I've ever written in my entire life and put everything I know, just just brain dump, it's all going in and write the most generous, best email ever. What would that be? And I worked for, I mean, I put a lot of work into this thing. I mean, I worked on, I worked really hard on this FAQ, multiple drafts and had people proofread it and kept, I still go in just yesterday. I noticed some like typos and some stuff I wanted to add and I went in and updated it and I've added more questions and, you know, all things like that. And now when people email me, what I say is take a look at the FAQ and I hope that it's helpful. I, I genuinely put everything I know about this topic into the FAQ. And if you still want to talk to me or ask me for something, feel free to email me afterwards. And I'll say like the number of emails I've gotten have gone way down. I mean, I get a tenth of what I used to, which is great. And the ones I get are much higher quality because people kind of already, like I find myself like repeating myself less. Yeah. Well, I, I want to officially ask for your permission to steal that idea from you. Oh, I... I heartily recommend you do it. So this is where I, I want to turn it back on you. So if you had the FAQ on your website, I'm always thinking about this. What questions would you have on there? What do people ask you? For me me, or what questions yeah, would I want you. from yeah. you? No, no, for you. What, what would you put on yours? You know, and it, it was been a while since I read yours because I read it when I originally reached out to you. But I, I think many similar things, you know, I get asked, um, uh, should I start a business or should I quit school and start a business? I get that one all the time. Yeah. What does it take to be a great entrepreneur? Uh, as a former three-time CMO, I get lots of questions about, I'm a new CMO, what should I do? Or I'm thinking about a career in marketing, what should I do? And then I get all kinds of ones around podcasting and writing. Now, how can, I, do I- can I ask you a question about like the CMO or like something about the career advice bucket? I meet with lots of people who ask me career advice and then they meet with me and they, I take them out to coffee or we meet up or whatever. And then they don't want to, they argue with me. They don't want to listen to a word I have to say. Have you ever had that? Oh my God. More, more times than I can count. <laughs> what is that? And I'm like, and I, I've, I've always want to, I mean, I don't say this, but I always want to say to people like, listen, you asked me for my advice. Why don't you just shut up and let me talk? And then if you want to call, if you want to say I'm wrong and call me an asshole, just wait until I leave and you'll have all the time in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I've even had that with, 
uh, entrepreneurs that I've been an advisor to. And I, you know, I can remember being sort of four or five years into certain relationships <laughs> and I get an email from this founder and say, Hey, I really would like to talk to you about X. And I remember one in particular, I emailed him back and I'd been an advisor for many years. The guy had literally never listened to a fucking word I ever said, did pretty much the opposite. Right. So I literally emailed him back and we'll just call him Jimmy. And I said, Jimmy, you know, I love you. I love your business. I'm proud to be associated with you, but you also have to understand you've never listened to one fucking thing I've ever said. And so I'm happy to talk to you, but are you getting any value out of this? Because it seems to be a waste of both our time. Yeah. Oh, so I've had, it's so funny. People want to, they want to ask me for advice about their thing and then they spend the whole time arguing. I'll say, well, what if you, have you ever, they'd be like, they'll say like, um, how much should I spend on Facebook ads as a percentage of my budget? And I would say, well, I would advise that you don't spend any money on Facebook ads. And here's another way to think of it. And then they'll start arguing with me. And I'm like, well, what'd you ask me for? Like, who's giving, you know, who's this for? Yeah. Like, and, and if you already know, like, here's the thing. And I, I have now sort of trained myself with, with people to say this. If what you're looking for is validation for what you're going to do anyway, then I validate you. Go do it. Because you're going to fucking do it anyway. <laughs> Right. So now, if you want to really game this thing out and bang it around and maybe be a somewhat contrarian or consider the fact that I might have a different point of view and I might want to push it here, there or whatever, then let's have a real authentic conversation. But if what you want is validation, we can save ourselves a whole bunch of time. I validate you. I love you. Go forth and be successful. <laughs> it's, that's so funny. I, I have that. I mean, I, I don't have, I sort of don't have the balls to say that in my FAQ, but I, I, I want to say that to people. Um, and you know, what's interesting is when I meet with people, cause I ask people for this favor all the time. I call smart people all the time and I'm like, Hey, can I like run this idea by you? And what I want is I want them to put it through the gauntlet. I'm like, I'm like, I, what I want is like, please pick this apart. Like, tell me every way you can think of where this is going to fail. And I don't know enough and every shortfall. And then I don't argue with them. I'm just like, wow, that's really smart. I didn't think of that. Or, you know, that's, oh, I, I should go, you know, I should, I should think more about this. Like, I'm so great when people like rip something apart, like I'm very grateful for it because it means they're, they're thinking critically about it. And they're not just telling me what I want to hear. That's well, a hard thing to get from people. Right. Like, I already know why I think it's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Right? right. I, I'm doing it. I, yeah, look, I clearly think it's a good idea because here I am doing it. Right. And I'm asking you about it. And, and I already think these ideas are awesome. And look, I'm, I'm like everybody else. I love, love it when somebody smart that I respect goes, oh, yes, that's fucking awesome, your thing. And, and that feels good. But to your point, it's actually not that helpful. Right? And so as much as the validation feels good, it, it's a little bit like... Um, you know, it's a little bit like a shot of sugar in a moment, right? But it's not necessarily nutritious. This is not necessarily making your idea, your company, your product, your category, your marketing, whatever the fucking thing is, any better or different. It's just sort of, you know, tickling your nuts and we all like our nuts tickled, but it may be not what, what really. <laughs> yeah, no, you're totally right. I think related to that is, um, you know, there's that whole idea from, or there's a great blog post. Um, I think I put it in my FAQ, but it's by... Um, Derek Sievers, and it's like ideas are just a multiplier of execution. Do you know that? It's kind of a classic yeah. piece of writing about that. Yeah. And uh, I think people, like in general, they probably tend to dramatically overvalue their ideas and undervalue the execution as like where the value is coming from. And so when people meet with me, like 
I'm usually pretty agnostic as to the idea of what they're doing, right? It's like, or it's like that Roger Ebert quote, like, it's not what a movie's about, it's how it's about it. I'm like, well, you could do any idea. Like, it's not your idea. It's, it's how are you going to execute? How are you going to do it? And then I start picking at that and they want me to concede that their idea is brilliant. I'm like, have a, it doesn't matter. Like any, like, like, well, Cards Against Humanity is a good example. Like that's a, that's a dog shit idea. Like that's not that great of an idea. It's just like a, it's a parlor game that's been around for 500 years, but like we, we executed well on it. Like that's what people, that's what people like is like the writing and the packaging and all of that. Like there's nothing like, it's not like a, it's not like a, a brilliant idea that we had. Like it's, it's a pretty stupid idea. Well, I got to tell you, look, and I'm a little bit of a fanboy on this game of yours. Uh, and I don't play it that much, but I will never forget the first time I saw it. And I just thought, the crazy bastards who invented this, I love. <laughs> and I will, never, I will never forget, Max, sitting um, years ago, um, we sort of had a family uh, get together in Napa. And uh, my wife's parents are in their 80s. And, you know, we're drinking wine. It's after dinner. It's sort of that time of the evening, right? And uh, it, it really fun family, my wife's family. And, um, you know, Italians and very playful and cook together and do all this stuff. Anyway, long story longer, someone says, let's play uh, Cards Against Humanity. And my uh, in-laws had never played the game. And so my uh, 80-something-year-old mother-in-law is sitting there and she pulls out this card and she whispers in my sister-in-law's ear, What's a glory hole? <laughs> and when I heard her say that, I damn near pissed myself. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, I, I hear some variant of that story from a ton of people, and I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm happy. People love. People like the game. Like it's. It makes people. It makes people laugh. It makes people happy. Um, I'm. I'm for me, like I just want. I'm. I'm at a point. I've been working on cards for ten years, so like I still. I put my work in, and it's still. I still am proud of the stuff we're putting out. But like, boy, am I ready to move on to to make other stuff and move on to new things? I mean, I'm sure you've had that feeling. Yeah, you sort of like, um, you know, a little bit like a band that has like a bunch of hits, but one really big hit, and. There's, I well, forget. Jack White doesn't play Seven Nation Army anymore, right? He's like he's he's on to other projects. I wish I could remember the name of it. There's a it shows up on my Pandora. There's a country uh, musician on one of my Pandora stations who's playing his big hit song live. Shit, I, I can't remember his name now. Anyway, he's singing this song and he gets about halfway through the song and they just sort of he starts talking to the audience, right? And he does this little riff and inside of this riff of talking to the audience while the band is continuing to play, he says, you know, I get asked all the time, what's the number one thing you should really focus on as a songwriter? And he said, I'm going to tell you, after you write a song, ask yourself this question. Can I play this fucking song every day for the rest of my life and not kill myself? <laughs> yeah. Well, I was reading, uh, there was a great article or something going around the other day of like songs that were started as genre parodies that became uh, taken very earnestly. So uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit, um, it, it was like a one that was kind of parodying pop punk and then became this like pop punk standard. Um, uh, Fight for Your Right to Party by the Beastie Boys. You know, yeah. that was a parody, a parody song of stuff they didn't like. And then it became this monster hit for them. And, you know, wasn't that member we're not going to take it? Wasn't that had a little bit of a vibe like that from Twisted? I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, but yeah, I think like people, yeah, like, yeah, no one wants to be a, uh, no, you know, BC Boy is obviously not, not only known for doing that one song, but like, I'm sure they hated having to play that in concerts. And that was the thing everyone was yelling for. 
But 10 years in, can you also appreciate like, hey, man, I fucking created a game with a bunch of other folks, of course, co-created this game that was a real haha game changer that many, many millions of people love. And I, ch- I checked this morning, Max. I don't, I don't, you probably don't check that often anymore. It's still the number one game on Amazon.com. Yeah, we've been, we've been holding... I mean, people knock us down every so often, but we always... <clears throat> somehow we always climb back up to that, uh, to that spot and it's been up there for a long time. And part, I mean, part of the secret is um, we're constantly updating the game. So every year we replace probably half, a third to half of the cards in the game. We're put, we constantly are putting out new products. We keep the writing really fresh. I mean, like an example is like when we wrote the game, Britney Spears was like the sort of pop idol. And we have, you know, like Britney Spears jokes in the game. And obviously like, there had to come the day when we were like, okay, we got to, these guys have to go because she doesn't mean the same thing in the um, popular, you know, vernacular anymore. So we're, we're, we're putting, you know, it's like, I, I don't want to say like, it's not like we're, um, uh, I think we're, we're um, putting in the work to keep the game fresh and all of that. But uh, it's, uh, and the other thing that, that's, that's, that I love about cards is at this point, what our company we're our company is almost like an advertising agency with one account which is the game cards against humanity and part of my job is just coming up with weird shit to do to promote cards against humanity and that's super fun like we do all these crazy black friday sales and you know uh, stunts and publicity tell me about your bullshit stunt i i i I, I loved hearing about this bullshit stunt yeah, I mean, this is like, a, um, we've done a long string of Black Friday things. So like Black Friday is this real dilemma for us because we, um, uh, it's a huge sales day for the toys and games industry. Um, it's very, you know, we obviously, it's like important to like our livelihood and our company's well-being that we like do something around the holiday season and Black Friday is the biggest day of sales for us. Um, but we have just sort of always decided that we never want to do like deals, discounts, coupons, or traditional advertising for Cards Against Humanity. We just we just don't do it. We don't spend money on advertising. So we've always had to come up with other stuff to kind of get people's attention on Black Friday. And so the first time we did it, we just did a reverse Black Friday sale where we were like, today only the game is five dollars more. And our and we were I can't even tell you how stressed we were about this. I mean, the night before we we launched this thing. We were like, this might be it. Like our fans might get so mad at us over this that they boycott the company and we're we're out of business. I mean, I, I couldn't sleep the night before. We were texting each other at three in the morning, going like, we can't possibly do this, can we? And then you know, sure enough, we did the next day. Came along, we launched it. People thought it was super funny. The fans like played along with the joke, almost like it was this like improv scene where they were like, you know, the, afterwards they were posting like, I can't believe I missed the five dollar more sale. You know, like I I can't believe I missed it, and um. People were like, "Can I still give five dollars extra to Cards Against Humanity?" So, you know, that was a good lesson for us. And then we started to get weirder and weirder. You know, one year, like you mentioned, we did this thing where we took our whole store down, and we said, "Everyone on Black Friday, everyone just wants to buy a bunch of bullshit, and we we have the best price on bullshit, which is we'll send you bullshit for only five dollars." And we sold a box of bullshit, and that was all it was. And uh, we sold out. We sold. And you literally bullshit. sold yeah. bullshit. Yeah. So we found uh, we got found a rancher who was able to process this like dehydrated bullshit, and we packaged it really nice. It came like packaged like jewelry, and yeah, it was a, it was it was great. It was a, it was a ton of fun like making that figuring out how to make that whole project work. 
This is another idea I would love to just rip you off because I think there's so many people, you know, as, as a podcaster, you, you might feel the same way, but there's so much intergalactic bullshit in the podcaster author world, particularly around sort of self-help and entrepreneurship. And it's just such garbage. And when I, when I saw you guys do that, I thought, hmm, I think I need to sell some bullshit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh boy, do I not like the, that whole um, racket. Yeah, I, I think it's really uh, ridiculous. I think it's very Kardashian-esque. And I think most of these, uh, I call them hustle porn star guys, you know, yeah. Ty Lopez, Gary V, Grant Cardone type guys. Uh, the truth is most of what they're selling is don't you wish you were me, right? They're not really selling anything well, helpful. Here's what I think. Um, you know, in a lot of like, um, so I, there was a great, do you know the podcast, uh, Reply All? It's like a tech, kind of tech journalism. And they no, find I these don't. incredible story. Oh man, you've got to check this out. It's probably my favorite podcast. It's, uh, it's on a Gimlet. It's a show called Reply All. And they did a show where, do you ever see those, um, are you ever browsing Instagram and you see these ads for like just crazy, like weird products, like people, and they're kind of, they're, what, what it is, is it's like drop shippers. They're just like buying cheap stuff from China and repackaging and selling it on, and then flipping it on Instagram. And they did a whole thing about, about this whole world of drop shipping. And it was great. They infiltrated this whole world and interviewed people. And apparently it's like incredibly hard. No one makes any money on drop shipping because you spend all your time doing customer service and there's like fraud and it, you just, it's, it's a horrible, horrible racket. But in the world of drop shipping, people get into it because they're listening to these, like you said, these self-styled kind of gurus who are like, you can become a millionaire working from home with only you know three months of work by becoming like a drop shipping empresario. And they made the point that I think of all the time, which is like, you know, drop shipping is really so good and you can really make millions of dollars. Why are all these people who are like allegedly good at it selling classes on how to become a drop shipper where you pay them hundreds of and thousands of dollars to get by by the secrets from them? Like you would think like if it's so lucrative and it's so great to be doing what you're doing, you wouldn't spend all your time sort of lecturing people and giving them advice. You'd just be out doing it, making a living. Well, amen, hallelujah. Do you see Elon Musk selling courses on how to start space companies and shit? Well, co no, but coincidentally, he can't run a regular business either, but the <laughs> weird example. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe so, but, uh, uh, you know, great point. I, I, I'd be surprised if Tesla lasts long enough for this episode to come out. Oh, really? You're that pessimistic on Tesla? I, well, I think they make a great product and they're, they're an awful company. I mean, they would do much better without, without Musk at the top, I think. Wow, that's a provocative point of view. Why, why do you feel so strongly? Uh, well, he's just a, the guy's out of his mind. Like he's committing securities frauds in his tweets. He, he's announced, they, you know, I think, I think he's um, announces these crazy features that engineering hasn't figured out yet and kind of promises things to customers that don't exist with this, with this philosophy of like, well, they'll have to do it if I promise it to the customer. Um, and they're hemorrhaging money. Like, aren't they having trouble securing like fine? I, I don't, I'm not, I don't know what I'm kind of talking about my ass here, but aren't they having trouble securing like, like financing because like regular banks don't, won't give them any credit. I haven't heard that, but it could very well be the case. Yeah. You know, the thing I do admire is, um, you know, as Spinal Tap so famously said, there's a fine line between clever and stupid. And, you know, he dances on that line. And I think um, like a lot of entrepreneurs, he's an inventors, he's quote unquote crazy. And with crazy comes some crazy. <laughs> yeah.
<laughs> you know, no, I think that's, I think that's true. I mean, um, yeah, I, I, I would say like, it's an interesting, it's an interesting industry for, for him, for that to be in because a car company is not something where you, you want to, you don't want to wonder if the car company is, is crazy or not. Right. That's something where right. like dependability and like good service and like safety and consistency are like extremely important. Yeah, you want the crazy folks over here and the QA folks and the product right. folks over here. Right. And and speaking of of and you know the other thing, if you're holding up Elon Musk is sort of like I guess like the antithesis of of these like um, uh, hustle uh, porn people. You know, he famously like sleeps on the factory floor and and is he's against uh, he's like opposed to his his workers like taking normal um uh, uh normal uh benefits like you know weekends and time vacation and time off and things like that like he's very much he's definitely in that camp of like crazy hustle porn people and like work until you're delirious kind of a thing yeah no i just meant in terms of he's not selling a course on how to right um it, it, it's like uh you know, legendary guitar players are very busy you know keith richards is very busy playing guitar not doing courses on how to play guitar right I think Abs- that's the absolutely only thing I right right or with you yeah, I'm, curious, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm with you on that. If you were advising me as a, you know, I think you're a genius marketer. Uh-huh. And I love all this sort of, I, you have this zany brain that thinks of these things that are completely orthogonal to, I think, what most people think of. And so if you were advising me, if I was the founder of a company or the CMO of a company, and I was looking at sort of all the traditional marketing approaches uh, and thinking, you know, how do I break out? How do I you know, what would Max do is sort of an interesting question, right? And so how would you advise me to sort of borrow some of the, let's just ship bullshit or let's increase the price by five bucks on black. Like, how do I think the way you do? <laughs> well, as my friend Patrick Rothfuss, who's who's an author and uh, many uh, people come to Pat and they give him their writing and their short stories and things like that. And they say, Pat, would you critique my writing? Would you give me notes? Would you read the thing I made? And Pat has this brilliant thing he says to people. He says, well, what kind of feedback would you like? And tell me from a one to a 10. Where a one is I'll just tell you the things I like, and a 10 is I'll rip it apart and, and really get in there. What, what kind of feedback would you like? Well, I would like a 10. I'd like you to, to, to rip. Okay, well, I, I would say like the Cards Against Humanity thing, I think people often approach the cards marketing stuff like selling bullshit. And then they're like, how can I do this for my company? And the thing is, the bullshit is just a tactic. It's downstream from a, a broader strategy and like beliefs that we have about Cards Against Humanity. You know, Cards Against Humanity means something to us. And so when we come up with ideas, we're able to answer, is this idea right for us or not? Because that's like a substantive question. So the question I would, I would ask you is like, what does your podcast mean? Like, what's special about it? What's, what's, the different, what's different about this versus the thousand other, you know, business advice podcasts out there? Um, I would say it centers around a couple of things. Number one, this notion of a real conversation of a dialogue versus an interview. You know, you've been interviewed a million times in a classic interview. You have a professional host with pre-configured questions. Uh, they ask you those questions. You're a media savvy guy. If I ask you the same fucking stupid questions that everybody ever asked you about right. how, how you created cards or whatever. Well, that, that's like the only reason I wanted to do this too, is I listened to it and I was like, oh, this is just like people talking. It's like a human conversation. Right. So that's the sort of big differentiator. We don't edit this shit. This is, you know, this conversation is what's going to, the world's going to hear. 
And then as part of that, I have this point of view that says legendary conversations make a giant difference. It, and many of us learn by talking and learn by listening. And, and so I think if, if for me to learn from Max, I love to read the FAQ. I love to read the shit about you. But what I really, if I'm really curious in how awesome you are and the cool things you do, and I think you're an interesting person, I want to have a conversation with you. And my assumption is that people who are curious, people who are interested in things, enjoy a real conversation. And the beauty of a podcast is you can eavesdrop on that conversation. And so that's sort of where I start as our key differentiator. And then look, I have a point of view about certain things on startups and marketing and categories that get inner, you know, get, get sort of sprinkled around during the, but the, the fundamental belief is that it is both um, educational and highly entertaining to listen to a real conversation that has a natural arc. There's this word we used to have in the English language that almost nobody uses called conversationalist. And I'm fascinated by interesting conversations, um, you know, with people who are unique. Yeah. Well, the, the, most, the first thing I would say is like, I think you just need to, so, so in game design, I, I, I was many years ago, I was working on an, on a game prototype and uh, <clears throat> the, if I'm being honest, the way I was working on it was, um, I played a bunch of other games that I liked and I was like, what if I steal this from this game and that from that game and that from that game and mash them all together. And then made it a thing that worked. I mean, it was, I would say it was like, it was serviceable. It it technically kind of, you could play it. And I showed it to some game designer friends of people that I really respect. And and my friend, Zach Gage, who's like a um, game designer that I really look up to played the prototype and Zach sort of sat back and he said, well, what's special about this? And I thought that was such a withering question. Like it really cut to the bone because I didn't, couldn't give a good answer. I was like, well, I don't know. Like, I guess I took all this stuff that I liked from other games and put it together. And he's like, well, that's the problem. There's nothing special about this game. Like you could, if I wanted that mechanic, I'd go to that game. And if I wanted that mechanic, I'd go to that game. Like the thing you made is it's okay. It's like, it works, but like, do you want to make something that works or do you want to make something special? And I was like, well, that's, that really is the heart of it, I guess. And so I always think about that. That's like one way to get at what I'm talking about is like, I always try to think of like, well, what's special about this? I think, I think it's very, very hard to, uh, very, very hard. It's a real like, um, it's a real journey to look at something that you're involved in and see it very critically and see it as an outsider almost. Cause like, like, you know, it's like with the podcast, it's like, you already know everything about the podcast. You're there for every conversation. You're there for every episode. Like you, you're, you know, all the information. It's very, very hard to step back as an outsider and be like, what would it be like to see this podcast for the first time? I have no clue, right? Very, very hard. And that's, but I'll say like that ability to like step, you know, it's like, it's like, uh, uh, it's like you want to like be like Doctor Strange. You have to like float outside your body. You have to like astral project and imagine what it would be like to see it. That's a. I actually think that's a kind of a design skill. I think sometimes designers are able to really cultivate that skill of you're able to step back and squint at it and be like, what would it be like if I was didn't know everything about this and I was seeing it for the first time? And I think you need to figure out like what's special about your thing and then make it only about that. Then get rid of everything else that's not the special part. So I don't know, like there's got, if, if, if what's truly what's special about this podcast is the, the, that you're a conversationalist and you're, you're drawing these great, you have these interlocutors and you're drawing these great conversations out of them. That's, that's the, should be the name of the podcast. That should be the branding. That should be the description. Like that's everything about it. And maybe, maybe that's part of what you should talk about with people is how do you have good conversations? 
Like, if, if that's truly the, the if that's at the center, if I'm like, you know, what's the, the little, the little black heart at the center of this thing. And that's the thing you're pointing to. Maybe that's what it needs to be about, right? Is like really focus in on that and, and focus on the thing that's special and get rid of everything that's not that. That's, that's certainly one strategy. But um, I mean, to go back to the FAQ for a second, you know, I said this also in the FAQ, but one of my greatest fears, I, I rarely, I really rarely talk about business stuff. Like I don't do any of these business podcasts. And I, I just never get into it. Because I think, what's the point? I already know what's going to happen, which is people are going to hear the story of like, oh, we, we did a Black Friday where we raised our prices. And they're going to go, oh, that's so cool. I should do a Black Friday where I raise my prices. And like, I can tell you right now that shit's not going to work for you because that has nothing to do with your brand, right? Like, like it, that worked because we are Cards Against Humanity and we wrote it in our voice and we came up with the idea such that it fit with our overall strategy. And it, and it like, it like clicked, it was like a puzzle piece, right? It like people had this mental map of what Cards Against Humanity is and who we are as a character. And then this little piece, it like, it like clicked right into the puzzle. And it was very pleasing. People go, oh, that makes sense. That's clever. Like you can't just take that puzzle piece and put it in your own puzzle. Like it's not going to fit. It's going to be weird. You're going to have to like smash it in there and bend all the corners up. Like it's not, it's just, it's just not going to work. So like I, I, the, the only, I mean, the truth is like, the real, the real reason that all this business stuff is complete bullshit is the only answer to any question is it depends. Like you have to figure it out authentically for yourself. Like, should you raise your, should you do a Black Friday stunt? It depends. Should you raise your prices? It depends. Should you spend money on Facebook ads? It depends. Should you make your logo one color? It depends. Like it's all, it depends, it depends, it depends. Like what, in, in service of what? Like what, what is the, strategically, like what are you trying to do? Like what are you trying to say about the world? And most people don't, have any meaning they haven't thought about it critically they don't have any meaningful answers to these things and then they get themselves in this situation where any solution is equally good because they stand for nothing their brand means nothing they they're, they're kind of like well we're all things to all people i'm like okay cool well good luck picking the color of your logo then yeah no shit and so i'm curious there's a very clear and obviously cards is the one i'm most familiar with for obvious reasons but there's a very clear what I would think of, but I want to hear how you think about it, sort of true north point of view of what Cards Against Humanity is. And so A, it seems like you guys are very clear who, I, who, who we are, who we're not. And B, when you, to your point, I think when you go to execute shit, it really seems like, like a lot of the legendary brands, whether it's a Nike or a Apple or whoever you want to point to, that it, you guys are always coming from the same place. So whether it's you're doing something political about what's going on on the southern border or you're shipping bullshit or whatever it is you're doing, there's this sort of sense that there's a true north that you guys are, are, are centered on. But that's just my experience looking at you as a fan. What is it like for you? Yeah, I think that's I think that's accurate. So so two of the big ideas um, that inform some of the stuff that we do with cards are the sort of Chicago school of improv where where a lot of us learned comedy and and you know a lot of us have experience and now we have a, a writer's room and they all come from the Chicago improv scene. Um, and then also the Colbert Report, the the show that Stephen Colbert did before the um, the Tonight Show or the whatever late night thing he's on. So with the Colbert Report, we, we really like this idea of like, I guess you would call it the, the semiotics of the show, but a less pretentious way of saying it is like, he's playing a character. And you know as the viewer that there's the real Stephen Colbert, who's like a decent guy who, who is doing a satire. But then there's also the character of Stephen Colbert, and they imbue that character with a certain reality. He, and the show, he never breaks character to say, 
guys, I'm just kidding. It's all a bit. He, he has to, he doubles down and he makes it worse and more awful so that you understand that he's joking. And that's, that's a part that, that is very, you know, and he also comes from the Chicago kind of school of, of improv. And that's something that I feel is very Chicago, which is, you know, improv is taking something that's not real and then imbuing it with so much reality. You keep agreeing. Yes, it's real. Yes, it's real. Yes. And you add to it, you add to it, you make it more and more real that, whether you started with something funny or not, it becomes absurd. It becomes so funny. The more real it gets, the funnier it gets. There's a kind of earnestness and commitment. And there's also this risk of failure of like, if you have an improv scene and you don't know where it's going and everyone just says yes and and makes it more and more real and abuse it with more reality, it might fail and be incredibly embarrassing. And lots of improv, most improv is really embarrassing. But when everyone commits and they imbue it with this reality and then it works, you, you, you're like looking into the face of God. Like it's a miracle. You're like, this could have only happened right here with these people in this moment and I'm in the room and it's, a, it's totally magic. It's total magic. You're completely transported by it. So those are the ideas that inform, to me, the character of Cards Against Humanity. Of I, I, I hope people know that behind the scenes, we are like decent people. We actually have like excellent customer service. We're very generous. Like we give people like refunds and stuff like, um, we always like tell like uh, this is like an idea from Disney, but you know, Disney has this idea of magic moments where like if you're a cast member at Disney World, you're empowered within certain reasonableness to just do whatever you need to like blow some kid's mind. So if it would make a kid's trip to meet to skip a line or meet a character, have something magical happen, you're just supposed to make it happen. Like bend the rules, spend the money, give something away, like create that magic moment because you're getting you're you're making a Disney fan for life. And we try to do that with our customer service team. Like an example, I'm not saying this just so people think we're cool, but it's just a good example that happened recently was like someone emailed us the other day into our customer service thing and they were like, I need a wheelchair and I, I need a motorized wheelchair and I can't afford it. And they linked us to the thing. And that was like the whole email. And they were actually kind of shitty about it. They were like, buy my fucking wheelchair. And someone forwarded it around and they're like, what should we do about this? Like we might be getting trolled. It might be a prank. And we looked it up and the wheelchair was like 600 bucks. And we're like, you know what, let's just buy it and see what happens. Like, I'm, I'm, just cu- I'm honestly curious to see what would happen. So we bought the wheelchair for the guy and it ships out in a couple of days. And I'm, I'm, I'm like honestly curious to see what happens if he posts about it or who knows. But like, that's, that's like Disney magic. And it's like, what's 600 bucks? Like, we could easily spend 600 bucks on a, on a company dinner, right? Like, it's, it's, we'll see. Like, maybe, maybe it was a complete waste of money and we'll look back on it and be like, boy, I wish we didn't spend that 600 bucks. But maybe it'll wind up on Reddit and he'll make a really nice comment about us or something. Like I have no, we have no expectation of it, but like we're going to try it and see what would happen. So I hope that behind the scenes, people know that we're, we are genuinely trying to like be, be excellent and blow people's minds and, and all of that. But then we also have this like character that we commit to. And I think that the more fully we commit to that awful character in our public communications, the funnier it is. Like it just gets more and more funny. Yeah, I mean, what, what's the tagline for the game again? About for people, we call it a, a party game for horrible people. For horrible people, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so, the character that is the game is this horrible person, right? Yeah, we're we're very um, cocky. Like, we're Cards Against Humanity is not the voice of cards is like not neurotic in any way. Like, we're definitely very confident. Um, what else? We're very. Um, we definitely have a certain like disdain for our fans. Like, we kind of. You know, we have sort of, I don't know, like we sort of have this like, you know, 
here's some slop for you hogs kind of a, a voice um there's a kind of laziness with the writing of cards like tonally like when you read it it's, it should sound it kind of sounds like thrown out and lazy now the reality of it is there's a team of like a dozen people like and we're work we're, you have no idea how hard we're working like every comma every hyphen every adverb every word is getting i mean we're working so it's like poetry like we're working on every word to try and make it work with this voice and make it work like nothing is without scrutiny but the, what we hope that it feels like is just there's a sort of breeziness or laziness you know this kind of slacker voice that comes across and i think sometimes that leads people to think like oh well it's really easy the people always ask like oh how high are you guys when you write this thing because they imagine from reading it they're like ah, they must just get high and come up with crazy shit and like man, we don't like, we're, it's like, it's not drugs. It's uh, depression. Like we're just working so, and anxiety. Like we're just sitting there just working just so hard, like fighting, go, going to bat for every, like I said, like every comma, like every word choice, like meticulously testing over like millions of, of hands, uh, in play tests, like every single card in the game. Like, I mean, we we're, we we're really sweating the details there, but that's so you're not just a bunch of potheads uh, spitballing shit. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I mean, that's the reality of it. I mean, that's like any, well, it's just like great quote from, I think it's from um, Penn Jillette from Penn and Teller. And he was like, the secret to every magic trick is the magician is working harder than you could possibly expect, you know, on something you would never anticipate. And uh, that's true for, I think that's true for a lot of, of clever stuff that Cards does and other companies too, is like, well, the secret is like, you're seeing it for 30 seconds, but we worked for two years on this. And I'm curious, what's your perspective now? I mean, you start with a Kickstarter um, campaign. Am, am I remembering this right, Max? Yep. And you raised, well, was at it? At first, we just put the game online for free. Like, we didn't even sell it. We were just like, here's a PDF of a, of a funny thing we made. Well, and it's still for free. I was on your website today. Yeah. It's still, we can go to uh, cardsagainsthumanity.com and download the, the whole fucking thing for free right now, can't we? Yep, absolutely. And why is that true? Um, well, we put it out for free just because we thought it was fun. I mean, the company was born out of, we, we made something funny and we thought it would make people laugh and we wanted to put it out in the world. And there was no, I don't mean this as like a cool, like we started in a garage story. Like we, we like when we made this, like there was no other game. You have to understand like the world, it was a pre-cards against humanity world. Like, there was no such thing as adult party games. Like, like it just, it wasn't a thing. Like it was just, they're certainly not on the market. Like it's just like, we couldn't have been sold in retail. Like no game publisher would touch it. Like, so we kind of made this thing and we're like, what do we do with it? And we're like the, like literally the I mean, only the folks thing at Mattel weren't bending over backwards to give you a ton of money to do this. <laughs> no, no one who would have wanted, like it, it was cr like, even when we describe it to people, they'd be like, this is, you're out of your minds. Like, this is so weird. And we genuinely just, wanted to make people laugh and so we just put it online and like no, this was not part of our life plan none of us wanted to become game designers none of us wanted to make a comedy party game I and mean, the other guys are you know i work in politics like josh is like an astrophysicist like ben is like owns a coffee shop and he works in advertising all these guys have like other like one of the guys who's got a phd in evolutionary psychology like they all have like other stuff they're doing we all have things that were like our plan in life that we're off doing. None of us were like, oh, we'll make a successful adult party game. Like that's not a plan. Like it was just this, it's just this thing that happened to us. Like, um, and so we never had any thought beyond, let's just make people laugh and put it online for free. Now, that being said, like it started developing a cult following. And I think we were very savvy of like, we, it was, it's a combination of getting, getting lucky and being smart, right? It, 
it, you have to have both. Like there's an element, for sure there's an element of luck. And I also think we were very smart and there were times where we were really able to capitalize on getting lucky and make really good decisions that made the company kind of blow up and, and become successful and like get it in front of a really big audience. But, um, you know, there's some, there is an interesting thing of like, I think a lot of the stuff that I love in the world and even stuff other people have made, most, a lot of that stuff starts from this desire of what if I just made this thing because it would be neat and like I just put it online and see what people think. And then 10 years later, it blows up into a big company or something. But then on the other hand, there's people who are like, I'm going to start a billion dollar company. And those ideas like rarely are delightful. Like they rarely work. Like, you know, like, does, does that make any sense? Like, there's kind of a weird yeah. thing like that of like, sometimes maybe it has to do with that conversation we were having about constraints or something. But sometimes I think just by allowing yourself to think small and just say, I'm just going to make something that just delights a few people. I'm just going to put it out there and we'll see what happens. I really think a lot of times those ideas turn into these huge phenomenons. And very rarely does someone go, I'm going to change the world with this huge idea. And then it works exactly as intended. Well, and when they say that it did, they're often lying. <laughs> right. And, and so, of course, you had no idea that you were going to create something like this. And as well, I would call you a category designer insofar as you and your co-founders uh, not only designed a legendary game and a company to support and market that game, but you actually designed a whole new category of this, you know, adult party game. And now there's a, there's a whole bunch of copycats and people trying to riff off of you. And, and it's a new genre, is it not? For sure. There's, there's like, I would, you know, there's a whole world of like Cards Against Humanity, you know, whatever, knockoffs. And it's the thing that frustrates me about it is, first of all, I don't think those games are very good. I don't think anyone's, people aren't just aren't very, they're not good writers. Like they're not careful. They're not trying very hard. And, that frustrates me because that's people go, oh, that's what people want is just more of the same but worse. Uh, and I don't, you know, that's, that's, I hate that. But um, the other thing is people like very uncritically, like they try to like make it look exactly like our game. They're like, oh, well, the right way to make one of these comedy games is to make it like a black and white rectangle box. And, like that's not the right way to do it. That's just the way that we happen to do it. And we did it for our, I mean, we had reasons why we did it that way, but like, what are your reasons? You're just doing it because we did it that way. Like you never had a conversation about, Look, we picked like Helvetica on black and white after much trial and error and we picked it because it was funny. Like it made the words funny. We typeset them different ways and we play tested it and we tried it and we realized like giving it that look made it really funny. But now other people make their games black and white Helvetica just because they think like, well, that's how these things look. And like, why though? Like you're not, there's no like critical interrogation of like why they're doing the things they're doing. And that's the, that's what drives me up the wall. Like I hate, I hate that. And it's not that we were being ripped off people it's not i don't think it's that it's it's just that it it's low art it's like not there's no art in it right it's so crass they're just like oh well we'll just copy cards because that's exactly what they did but um in response to the thing you said though of like you said like am i a co-founder or whatever like it's interesting like i never call myself a co-founder to me people if you're a co-founder if that's like an important part of your self identity or whatever or you have a startup or any of that to me, what that says to me is the artifact, the, the work product is the company. And I don't believe that's true about Cards Against Humanity. I mean, we have a company, but only because it would be, we waited until we almost like destroyed ourselves by not having a company. Um, we didn't, we never started, we never set out going, boy, I hope we have a cool, you know, LLC. Like, that'd be sweet. Like, I can't wait until we have an op agreement, guys. Like, that'd be so cool. 
like we like that was like we just did we literally waited until the last minute until it almost destroyed our lives and then we had to do it and so we figured it out and we put it together all we just want to make a game like the company is scaffolding that's there by necessity we have to have it because the scaffolding supports the game so i would much rather just be like the co-designer of a game than in, in the case of cards against humanity it feels more appropriate to me to say my titles like co-designer of the game because the game is the work product like we're all about making this game and the company is not i i you know it's not we're not building apple here where it's like oh it's like these people and these values that are like the cool thing like the cool thing is the game like we're all there in service of the creative idea of the game i love it and now i'm curious i read some shit online um about a, a deal cooking with comedy central oh um Basically, about every uh, two weeks, some entertainment person emails us and they go, can I create a Cards Against Humanity uh, TV show and, or movie or something? They always want a license. And we don't do any licensing deals and we're just, we always say no. And I've, had a, I've been on like literally like 30 of these calls where some Hollywood person is like, can I pitch a show or something? And what they always pitch is like a panel show where like celebrities play Cards Against Humanity and we don't want to make that because it sounds, it honestly sounds horrible. Um, but uh, we got a call from Comedy Central UK, so it's like they're the the English card, uh, Comedy Central, and uh, there somehow it involves the people who did the show Whose Line Is It Anyway, which is like I don't know if you watched that, but for us that was like a formative, pretty show. funny show. Yeah, yeah, I loved it. And so we're 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 like talking with them, we're seeing where it goes. Like I would say the odds are like three percent that that comes out. Like I don't know if you've ever been through any entertainment stuff, but these people are all, like everyone's full of shit. And they'd love to talk, 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 and then nothing ever gets, nothing ever happens. So I would say it's probably never going to, nothing will ever come of it, but we'll see. It's funny that you say that, you know, because uh, growing up in Silicon Valley um, and sort of doing a handful of things over time at the intersection of entertainment and technology, you know, I spent a bunch of time in Hollywood and, and, and to your point, and look, I don't mean to be critical. I know there's some pretty legendary people there who do legendary shit. So I don't mean to just paint everybody with the same brush, but it is strange as a, as a person, you know, I consider myself an entrepreneur and a business person and, and those kinds of conversations that you have around deals or whatever it is in the business world have a very particular arc to them. And there's a sort of a context that most people understand and, and so forth and so on. To your point, these Hollywood discussions, I don't even understand what the fuck's going on. It sounds like a lot of bullshit. There's a lot of weird name dropping and we could this and we could that. And it, oh, I, let's take I, I don't know how to determine we'll what's we'll real. General meeting. What's that? We'll have a general. Oh, we'll have a general meeting. Yeah. The hell are you talking about? That. Yeah. There's no point. We're just going to spitball some shit and talk <laughs> about know. Beyonce that's or what, what are we doing here? That's what everyone does in Hollywood is they have general meetings with each other and they just drive for three hours to like to pick at a sandwich and like bullshit and not make anything. I don't know. It's like it's it's a weird. It's a whole. It's very not Chicago. It's like very outside of my my the way that I like to. To get things up, but anyhow, I'm I'm saying all this is going to sound really funny if the show comes out and then I have to go promote it and say, oh, it's like the coolest thing we've ever done. But uh, we'll see. I, 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 to me, it's like it's not done until it's done, and if it comes out, I'll, it'll be amazing and it'll be great. But like I've also heard you say to the point you were on earlier, Max, about how you update the game all the time, but that you didn't want to do a cards uh, two, so to speak, right? And, yeah, and that's... not all these sort of spinoff things that you would have expected to, you know. I don't know, a card doll or a fucking cologne or like there's a million things I'm sure people have come to you with sure. of ways to quote unquote extend the brand. Our, 
I've always said, if you ever see Cards Against Humanity do t-shirts, it means that we're, we've given up. Like that's it. That means that we're creatively done with the company and we're just trying to cash in and get the last money that we can out of it. Like t-shirts will be the last thing we do before we just like go out of business or kill ourselves. Well, it's like, remember when Ed Hardy t-shirts were the cool thing? <laughs> yep. Right. And so, yeah. Why is it I can't buy a funny uh, cards t-shirt with one of the cards on a t-shirt? Yeah. I, I just, I don't know. I just not, I, I guess like we've had lots of internal discussions about it. And like, so part of it is I just think it would be fundamentally lame to make a t-shirt company. Like I just don't want to make a t-shirt company. And there's other people like, you know, I have my friends at Threadless who I think are much better at that. And I don't have any illusions that we have any like special knowledge or anything that would make us make a a successful t-shirt company. So that's number one. But number two is, um, uh, well, we, we've just had, like, I, I just, I like making a game. Like, I, I just, isn't that, can't that be enough? Like, can't, just, can't we just be a game company? Like, do we have to be a media conglomerate? Like, and we've had, we've had, we have lots of back and forth. I mean, there's eight of us who work on the game, you know, partners together. And we certainly have lots of back and forth about this. So sometimes the guys will be like, we should get into the t-shirt industry. And to me, the thing that I'll always push back on is I'll go, well, what's our brilliant idea for t-shirts? Like, let's start by looking at a great idea and then decide if we should do that or not versus like, abstractly talking about becoming like t-shirt empresarios or whatever. You know, it's so interesting that you say that. I, have you heard of the, um, the comedian, uh, Kathleen Madigan? Kathleen Madigan. The she she tours Wars? with, um, 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 uh, black, uh, fuck Lewis black a lot. Oh yeah. I know. Ka- funny oh as shit. Yeah. She's, she's hysterical. Been, she's been around forever. She's been around a long time and she's yeah. been a hugely successful 20 plus year career as a stand-up, and um, she was coming, I live in Santa Cruz, and she was coming to Santa Cruz, and my wife and I got tickets, and we were looking forward to seeing her. Anyway, long story longer, I was doing some Googling around, and I read some interviews with her, and she made this exact same point. An interviewer sort of said to her, hey, Kathleen, like, you know, why don't you have a sitcom? Why aren't you like Roseanne, or why aren't you doing this, or why aren't you doing that? And she said, you know, look, when I started off, my goal was to be a professional stand-up comedian. And what I really wanted to do was make people laugh, have a good time, and travel the country with my friends doing something that I enjoyed. And I made it. This is what I wanted to do. And so I'm going to fucking do this. I don't, I don't want to be Roseanne. I want to be Kathleen. And this is what I wanted to do. And so this is what I do. And I don't do all that other shit. Yeah, I would also, I think that's so smart. And I would also draw a distinction, you know, like to use like maybe like being an author, for example. Like, I think there's a difference between writing books and being an author. Be, you know, I know plenty of, there are plenty of people out there who are like, they are an author professionally. Like, that's kind of like what they do is like they talk about being an author and they talk about writing and stuff. But like, they don't write so many books that people read. You know, for me, like, I would rather make games than like, be a game designer like having the being the noun is not that meaningful to me like i i I like the verb like i like making stuff i like me i like doing stuff that makes people happy like i like learning new things like i like the active part of it and i and i sort of fear the stagnation of like being a game designer right like where you're like spend all your life talking about it or you know whatever like doing this podcast once is fine but if i did these if I did every one of these podcasts and filled up my calendar with like podcasts where we like talked about making games, like I, I, I blow my brains out because I can't stay like, it's, it's so stagnant. Like it's so like, it's just like navel gazing. Yes. And, and like, who's that for? Who's that for? Like, you know, what is that? I don't know. 
No, I totally get it. You know, in my world, by way of example, with all due modesty, I, I give a good speech. You know, I'm a good public speaker. And from time to time, somebody pays me to do that. However, and it's a giant however, I am not a professional speaker. I don't have a fucking speaker's bureau. I'm not traveling around trying to do this shit. For exactly that same reason, I feel like if I said, okay, now I'm a professional speaker, then I go from being a guy that does stuff to being a guy who talks about doing stuff and I want to be the guy doing the stuff. Is that sort of how it is for you? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, and the so- goal to me, I mean, there's, there's this idea, another idea from, from Walt Disney that I think about is he said, uh, we don't make movies to make money. We make money so we can make more movies. And that's a, it's maybe a, a, a subtle distinction for people. But to me, like the point of, the great gift of like Cards Against Humanity being successful is like I can make more games. Like it's not, it's not, you know, I didn't, like cards didn't come out of this desire to make money. It just came out of this desire to make something that made people laugh. And I I just want to make more stuff that makes people laugh and make people happy. You know, it's so amazing you say that, Max. Lately, I've been engaged in this debate in the podcast world. I don't know if you've heard this one. Some of the top podcasters now are charging their guests, in some cases, 5,000 bucks to come on and be a guest. And I was just on a podcast debating this against a guy who is for this, and I'm completely against it. And sort of his fundamental argument is, hey, I built this platform and it's worth something and, and, and you should pay me because I'm doing all this promotion for you and all that. Wait, and, say, uh, tell me the two sides. I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure I followed. So, so the one side is um, if you want to go. So there's a podcaster in the, in the entrepreneur world named John Lee Dumas. Mm-hmm. And he's got a podcast called Entrepreneurs on Fire. Mm-hmm. And I don't know exactly when, but at some point. So, sounds started, dangerous. Yeah, it's a very popular podcast. Yeah, and he's, but someone you should know. put them out. <laughs> anyway, he char- I don't know what he charges, but he, he now charges his guests to come on his podcast. So if you want to go on. Oh my uh, Jesus Christ. You got to pay him some amount of money. Wait, it should be the, <laughs> okay, all right, I'm following this. Okay, wow, sorry not to betray my opinion, but you should be paid to be a podcast guest. Jesus Christ. Well, sort of, right? And my position is, and, and, and the, the people who believe this, I just debated this guy named Super, Super Joe Pardo who, who believes this and he does this in his podcast. I look at it and go, well, fuck. And he, he says, I built this platform and people should pay me to be on my platform. And to your point, the way I think about it is, well, first of all, I'm not sure I built this platform is the way I think about it. But here's what I do know. The degree to which there's some people around my podcast who are interested in the kind of conversations we're having, the reason I wanted to do this was A, to have the conversations with guys like you, and B, to share it with the world so that people who are interested could kind of tune in. And, and, and the big sort of thing that's blown me away is now for people who come on my podcast, it tends to be somewhat helpful for them in their career or their business or whatever, because they get some exposure. And, and I look at it and I get long, this is a long answer, but I look at it and go, this is why I did this was to be able to create an environment for people that I think are interesting, doing really cool shit to have conversations and share those conversations. That's why I did this. I didn't do this to fucking charge Max to be on my fucking podcast. I'm honored. I'm stoked that you're here. And the degree to which we have a quote unquote platform that is helpful to you and cards and the other things you're doing. I want to promote you because I think you're cool and interesting. To the point of Super Joe's, uh, is that really what he calls himself? Yeah, Super Joe Pardo. Jesus Christ. To the point of, uh, 
<clears throat> Super Joe's uh, thing of like, well, this is my platform. Yeah, like, of course, it's, that's the whole thing. Like, it's your platform. Like, if I go on your podcast, like, I don't get a split of the ad revenue. Like, I don't get any of those, like, Twitter followers. Like, that's your, you are putting, th- th- that's, my being there puts equity into the thing that you own. Like, you should pay your, if anything, I actually think that there's a scandal in podcasting. The podcast guests aren't, not that I think I need to be paid to be on your show, but like, in general, like it's a lot of work to prepare to go on a podcast and take time out of your day to do it. And and the, there's this whole convention in this industry that you don't get paid. But if you're a CNN contributor, you get paid to go on CNN because you're getting you're putting value into CNN's platform, and CNN is selling ads and making a living doing that. So every other industry has this idea that you pay your guests to do work to come on your thing. Like it's it's wild to me that there's this convention on podcasts that no one is is paid to be a guest. But the whole idea that you should pay to be on a podcast. I mean, that's also like, basically you're just buying ads on someone else's platform, but in disguised as content, which is also possibly like an, an ethics and, and legal issue. I, I don't know if it's a legal one. I'm no lawyer. I do think it's unethical. And I do think, and even if you disclose it, because I think if you're going to do it, you have to disclose it. But I want you know, the folks who listen to... Okay, I, um, I, I'm still caught up that he calls himself Super Joe. What's so super about him? I, I don't know. And I don't, I don't know how he got that nickname or whether I, I have no idea. And he seems like a nice enough guy, but he's representing a point of view. You know, apparently Lewis House, who's supposedly a big damn deal. I, I'm not a big fan. He does that. And, and now JLD, who's got a giant podcast, does it. And apparently there's some others, but um, I mean, you're only going to, if you char, if, <laughs> if you make your guest pay to be on your podcast, you're only going to get the most like mediocre, like shit tier guests. Like who would do that? That That's like, I what I think. Be on a podcast. Like I don't even want to be on, on a podcast for free. And I love the, the Disney quote, you know, we don't make movies to make money. We make money to make movies. I, I do right. podcasting to do podcast. Like I, I want to have this conversation with you. Right. Right. And, and, and that's what I think is cool about it. And to your point, um, you know, listen, as an author and a podcaster, I've been on some giant podcasts and hung out with authors who, you know, you know sell more a day than I've sold in my whole life and probably ever will. You know, we had Ken Blanchard on, one of the top 25 uh, uh, most selling authors on in Amazon history on this podcast. And, and so there's all these people of sort of different levels of sort of fame and success and whatever. And what I love about the podcasting world is exactly what we're doing. You know, um, we're just coming together, two guys who want to have a conversation. And to your, to the Disney quote, you know, we, we, we make money to do podcasting. We don't do podcasting to make money. Yeah. Now, I, I, there's yeah, one more big... Podcasting is uniquely full. You know, there's this other startup luminary that, that's getting yep. a lot of buzz right now. Like something about podcasting attracts people who hate podcasting. Like why do all these people who hate podcasting want to destroy it? why do they feel the need to do a podcast? Like, can't you just do something else that you like? Like, go, <laughs> like, I, I don't understand it. Like these luminary people have such contempt for podcasting. They clear, they so clearly hate the medium. They hate the work. They hate the people. Like they're just, they're just trying to tear the whole thing down. Like, I, I don't understand. Like just do another startup if, if, that, if that's what you want. I don't know why you'd want to do something you hate. And I think podcasting is one of the coolest fucking thing that ever happened. And I'm still, I, I was a huge fan of it long before I ever started. And my, my joy surrounding it has increased ever since I became a podcaster and the podcast that I love, you can, you can tell when the, when the, when the people behind the podcast, the host or whoever, where it's a, a labor of love and where it's not. And that's what I want to listen to. Mm-hmm. Now I do want to ask you, um, 
you have created some huge hits. Is there any advice that you would have for people who look at you and go, you know, yes, there's a serendipity to something like cards, but listen, you have other games that have been very successful. You have a great podcast. You know, there's lots of other things that you've done that have achieved success as well. Um, do you have any particular insight on how do you make something uh, that you care about, a creative endeavor like like you've embarked on? How do you make it successful in the world? Well, I, I have a I can sort of spout off a bunch of sort of like philosophical bullshit of things that I think about it, but I would also just preface that by saying like I, I don't know that I have any special insight into why the things I do that are successful are successful because I do lots of things that aren't successful. And if there was some secret, if there was some secret sauce that you could do where it's just like, oh, I'll just do my trick and then everything will work, like what you would expect is all of the projects I do would be very successful and people would care at them about them. But like most of the stuff I do, like more than half of the stuff I do, like no one cares about it. Like, I mean, it, it may, a small number of people might care about it, but it's not like, it doesn't blow up like Cards Against Humanity. So like, I don't, I don't know. Like if I knew every, I would, I would obviously make another Cards Against Humanity or make other projects like that. And, and beats me. Like, I, I don't know what makes some things work and some things don't. Um, so that being said, like, I don't have anything like radically different than what I've been saying the whole time. But I think, I think a lot of people are looking in, when they hear these business startup, you know, bullshit things or read these books or whatever people are looking, or even when they talk to me for advice, what they're seeking is a way out of the difficult uh, journey of authentically understanding what's special about the thing they're doing and trying and failing. Like, I understand why people don't want to do that because it's emotionally taxing and it's hard and I'm going through it right now on a game I'm working on and it makes me want to die. I hate it. And I feel like a failure and it's never going to work. And I, and I, and I'm like, what am I doing with my life? Like, why, you know, the like, yeah, it's, it sucks. It's horrible. It's like the dark night of the soul, but also that struggle of not knowing what to do. You have to go through the, go on the journey of accepting a part of every creative journey is that you don't know what to do next. And part of being an artist is accepting the feeling of not knowing what to do next as normal. That is part of the creative process. And any sort of hack or system or thing that you can work that gets you out of that, anything that lets you like pop a parachute and, and bail out of this like process of not knowing what to do and then working, do, and working, and working, and working and trying things and not knowing what to do and not knowing what to do and not knowing what to do until you stumble upon this, this special thing that's at the heart of what you're trying to do. If you have some way to avoid that, it's going to fail because you're that 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 is the creative process like that that pain and that uncertainty that is that is the journey to understanding that makes your art good and worthwhile so it's crazy to me that people have some sort of hack other than you just have to work hard and try lots of things and do lots of testing and be willing to fail over and over like which is like i know that's trite and everyone says that but like what do you what do you want from me like that's that's what it is like you've got to you, you, you got to very critically interrogate the thing you're, you're doing and, and um, try and understand what's special about it and then make every, and then get rid of everything that's not that special part. And that's hard. It's because if it was easy, everyone would do it and all everyone's stuff would be successful. It, is it wrong? Sorry, that was probably the opposite of being helpful, but no, no, it was, it, I was just about to say, is it wrong for one man to want to kiss another man? <laughs> Like, no, because I, don't know, I think like, we live at a time where there's a lot of this bullshit, whether it's self-help bullshit or entrepreneurial bullshit or career bullshit and, you know, handy tweets and 
do these yeah, three well, things. Follow and- my eight steps and your thing will be creatively successful. I'm like, but how is that possible? Because then everyone's thing would be successful. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you are fantastic, Max. Um, uh, I, I really appreciate this conversation. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? No, this was great. Well, no, I, 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 had, I had a lot of fun. This is this is a great show. Thank you, man. And I'd love to have you back anytime. You know, if you've got new stuff you're working on or ideas you want to uh, kick around with a with a, a a welcoming ear, I'd love to have you back. I um, I admire the shit out of you and your colleagues. Uh, you've made some great contributions. And um, yeah, there's one. Oh, other... I don't want to be here for this part. This is embarrassing. Okay, well then I'll shut up. There's one other very cool thing about what you do, and it was sort of it, it sort of. Uh, sparked up in my head when you were having that kind of Colbert discussion. There's this nudge, nudge, wink, wink against about cards, right? You, you have this real attitude, this arrogance, this, this, you know, for horrible people and all that. But behind that, we could tell that there's smart people with a real sense of humor. So there's a bit of a nudge, nudge. We're in on the joke that you're not as horrible as you appear to be, right? I, ho- I hope that's the case. I mean, we always hope that comes through, but very critically, this is a this is a god where we I need another hour to talk about this, but you know this is a, a critical distinction about cards, which is we're not scared of people not knowing that if people read the game and they think we're assholes and plenty of people do, that's okay. That's part like accepting the risk of failure is is part of it. Wouldn't be good if there was if we built it in a way where every card was like ah it's just a joke we don't really believe this then it wouldn't be funny. Like that is comedy. Like, like accepting the risk of creative failure and misunderstanding is part of making art. And I think it's probably detrimental to art that, that so many people are afraid of being disliked. They're so desperate to control how they're perceived. I think that's probably overall bad for art, but that that's a whole, like I said, we need a whole other hour to get into that. Well, that's a very cool idea. And I would love to welcome you back for that conversation and any other you ever want to have Max. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. All right. There he is, the legendary Max Timken on the Oddcast. And, you know, as I've thought about the conversation with Max, one of the other things that sort of strikes me is how grounded in a point of view he is, how grounded in a true north he is, how he knows what Cards Against Humanity would or wouldn't do, um, why he knows they don't want to sell T-shirts, by way of example. And, you know, it's, it's the very rare inventor, creator, designer, entrepreneur who is so deeply grounded in we are this and we are not that and willing to have the courage of his conviction to stick with it. Incredible guy. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Now, um, if you want to grow your business, you got to know what's going on. And NetSuite allows you to master knowing the critical things in your business so that you can empower your growth. And, you know, my first business, um, it failed for a number of reasons, but it didn't fail because um, we weren't growing. It failed because we didn't know how to operate a business. We crushed ourselves with cash flow. So NetSuite has very powerful cash flow management capabilities that help you avoid the mistake that I made. Also, today we live in a hyper-dynamic world with what people call omni-channel, um, omni-channel markets and marketing, and we have to be able to do business digitally and physically and through distribution channels and direct and so forth. And so having an uh, omni-channel strategy across multiple geographic markets is 
critical and yet incredibly hard to get done. NetSuite has pre-built all of that for you. In addition uh, to cash flow management and sort of um, being able to have multiple channels, planning and budgeting is an area where um, uh, entrepreneurs tend to fall down. NetSuite is incredible at that, facilitating both company-wide and departmental planning that allows you to roll up your models, allows you to have approvals and workflows associated with that, and then reporting against your plans. It's an incredibly powerful platform. So check out netsuite.com slash different. And while you're there, you'll be able to schedule a free one-hour growth review with an expert in your industry. Because if you want to know, you got to grow. And with NetSuite, you're always going to know. All right. We would like to thank the legendary podcast by today's uh, guest, Max Temkin. Check it out. Do it by Friday at doitbyfriday.com. And of course, if you're one of the few people who doesn't have a copy of Cards Against Humanity, pick one up and they make an outstanding guest as well, uh, a gift rather as well. Niche Down, How to Become Legendary by Heather Clancy and myself. Why not pick out uh, pick up a couple of copies on Amazon.com today. OneLifeFullyLived.org. Don't forget, check us out. Um, and uh, we'd love to see you at our conference in Long Beach later on this year. Are you an executive looking to create an unbelievable future? Check out Future Hackers, uh, Vixen2 at B-I-C-K-S-O-N, the number two, dot com. My friend and guest, Dushka Zapata, and I got to tell you, she was our first guest. She's our most uh, regular guest, most reoccurring guest. We love having her on. And if you haven't listened to an episode with Dushka, go to lockhead.com, type in D-U-S-H-K-A. And I am always amazed when she comes on at the emails and the tweets that we get. And uh, people just love Dushka. She's, uh, there's a reason 135 million people have viewed her work on Quora. Growwire.com, what legendary entrepreneurs are reading to grow their business and themselves. Check out Growwire.com. GoBundance, the mastermind group of legendary male entrepreneurs who are grabbing life big. Check out G-O-B-U-N-D-A-N-C-E.com. Now, are you in Australia? Do you want to do some legendary marketing? And my friends at Rapid Media are who you want to talk to. Check out rapidmedia.com.au. And uh, do you love popcorn? Who doesn't love popcorn? Well, I'll tell you, you haven't had popcorn until you've had Fisher's popcorn since 1937. And uh, my wife and I just got two big barrels of this stuff. Oh, my God, is it, is it ever great. It'll change uh, what you think of popcorn. Check out my friends at fisherspopcorn.com. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. Uh, we must warn you that uh, taking any information from this oddcast, uh, if you're going to do it, you should really get the consent of a medical professional. Support your local designer. Don't forget to buy John's Crazy Socks. Be a podcast legend and tell two people you love about two podcasts you love. Listen to the amazing Robert Earl Keen, only buy pasture-raised, free-range eggs. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, uh, my deepest apologies go to Gary Vaynerchuk. Sorry, Gary, we just ran out of time for you. Thank you so much. It means the world to me that you want to hang out, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your difference.